90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. All right, hello everybody. I'm John Lehman. And I'm Matt Herman. Yes, that's right. Shannon is out this week, so we have a guest co-host, and we're recording at an unusual time and unusual location. So you'll have to ignore any of the construction noise as they're tearing down the building behind us. Matt has joined us this week to talk about the Nepal earthquake that just happened. We thought this would be a timely news story. But before we get into that, Matt, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background? Hi, so um, I came to Penn State in 2010 as a master's student, um, and I've been here ever since. Started working on my PhD in 2012. I work in the geodynamics lab with Kevin Furlong on lots of earthquake-related problems. Right, so Matt spends a lot of time looking at uh, wiggles on a screen and making uh, some really neat <laughs> figures, doing a lot of great calculations, and has also had some experience out at the USGS office, right? Yes, uh, I spent my past few summers working at the National Earthquake Information Center in Golden, Colorado, um, and when you go to earthquake.usgs.gov, uh, those are the guys who run the site, and so I've gotten a lot of really valuable uh, experience working with them. Right. So earthquake.usgs.gov is where we're going to be looking at for a lot of this show, and it's good, the link will be in the show notes, so if you're at a computer, definitely uh, head over to our website, don'tpanicgeocast.com, pull up the show notes, and open some of these links, uh, especially the one we're going to be talking about movies. It's a little bit hard to do that over radio. So... I guess we'll just start out by kind of giving some background on where this earthquake occurred because it's a really complicated zone, right? Yeah, yeah. So anytime there's uh, continental collisions and mountains being built, it tends to be uh, pretty complicated geologically speaking. So uh, this earthquake happened in an area right near the Himalayas um, where India is colliding with Eurasia. and um, you know, many of you know Mount Everest was near here. It had an avalanche uh, during this earthquake. And, um, you know, so we've got these mountains here. We know there's active deformation. Um, and so the earthquake, uh, so how much do you want me to talk about the earthquake right now or its setting? Well, I guess let's just look at the setting a little bit and a little bit of background. You know, normally we think of plate boundaries, uh, these big earthquakes being on subduction zones where you've got an oceanic plate that's kind of cold and dense that gets pushed under a continental plate, like Japan Trench or any of those kind of situations. Uh, But here, like Matt said, we're actually talking about two continents that are like, so two buoyant things that neither one wants to get pushed under each other, right? Exactly, exactly. So uh, what's interesting here is that um, in... As India collides with Eurasia here, it's being forced under Eurasia. And so um, the plate boundary is actually um, in northern India. That's where India stops and it starts uh, transitioning into Eurasia. Um, And then India gets shoved northward under Eurasia there. And that's where that earthquake occurred in that uh, plate boundary between India and Eurasia. Right, and so this zone's loading at something like 40, 50 millimeters a year. So for all of us in the U.S., it's a couple inches uh, <laughs> a year. 
And that's really quite a bit. There have been some pretty large earthquakes in this area in the past, right? I know in 1988 and yep. one before that. Yeah. And so the, the really big one was uh, in 1934, and that was about a magnitude 8 earthquake. Um, but there's, there's historical seismicity all throughout this southern part of the Himalayas. There are a lot of active faults here um, and many damaging historical earthquakes, both uh, recorded by humans, but also in the paleo-seismological record as well. Yeah, so when we actually look at what's called the focal mechanism for this earthquake, so how the fault was oriented and how the, the plates slipped past each other, we're actually looking at a fault that's at a really shallow angle. In fact, it's pretty close to horizontal. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, in, the, in geological speak, we say the fault is dipping, and that's the angle that the surface um, that the fault is on uh, is with respect to horizontal. And it only dips at 10 degrees. And for you should uh, take a protractor out and see what 10 degrees looks like. <laughs> um, it's, it's very shallow. It's very close to horizontal. And when you're far away from a, a uh, 10 degree plane. It looks very horizontal. Um, and this is uh, consistent with the geometry we expect um, from this collision zone where India, again, is being underthrust under Eurasia and that plate boundary is oriented at about 10 degrees. Yeah. So how far on this very shallowly dipping uh, area did the plate actually move during the earthquake? What's the best estimate right now? So um, the best estimate for the displacement on the fault when the earthquake moved is a maximum of a little more than three meters. Um, so again, for those of you who aren't used to the metric system, that's about 10 feet. Now, that doesn't mean the entire plate boundary moved 10 feet, but um, a large portion of it did. Well, yeah, and the rupture area for this earthquake was absolutely massive I and mean, it's practically the width of Nepal, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. And I'm not sure how long was the the rupture? The rupture lasted somewhere around a hundred seconds. So most of the energy was released in the first 40 seconds, um, but even from about 40 to 100 seconds, there was significant uh, energy being released around the sort of edges of the main slip zone. Yeah, and the strong shaking from the videos that we've seen from Nepal it looked like it went on for quite a while. Right, right. It was it was sufficient to knock over um, even well-constructed buildings in uh, places like Kathmandu and uh, buildings that were poorly constructed, which is many buildings throughout Nepal, uh, suffered very badly. Yeah, I mean, uh, I made a movie of the ground motion at one of the close stations, and that'll be in the show notes as well. But the seismometer there clipped at, I think it was something like 25 millimeters yeah. uh, displacement. And I mean, that's the, the boundary of the instrument. But the ground moved a lot, very violently. And actually, uh, that's part of my work. One of the things I do is I try and look at what the how the surface moved from these earthquakes and both... Uh, take the earthquake and predict the surface displacements and go the other way. Take the surface displacements and use them to um, say something about the earthquake. Um, and if you just take the seismological solution for the earthquake um, that predicts uh, a meter of displacement in places near Kathmandu where the shaking was most severe. And that's, that's a lot of displacement. Yeah, so when you say that you're going to take uh, these displacements and try to work backwards towards the earthquake. 
you're obviously not going to use seismometers for that. They're not great static offset instruments. Right. So are you using GPS stations? Exactly. So GPS and INSAR, we call these geodetic measurements. And uh, there are other types of geodetic measurements, uh, tilt meters and things like that. But uh, most commonly for earthquakes, we see uh, GPS and INSAR. And for those of you who don't know what INSAR is, um, it's a satellite that orbits the Earth and takes pictures. And if it takes a picture of a site and then takes a picture again, you can take the difference between those two to determine how much the ground moved. Right, and it's doing that in uh, radar wavelengths. Exactly. Right? Yeah, so it's an actually an active instrument that's orbiting on several satellites. And that may be the best solution uh, for looking at this earthquake because I'm, I'm kind of doubtful that there's a really dense GPS network. Yeah, I, I don't know much about the GPS network out there. Um, but my guess is INSAR will be very valuable for constraining uh, what happened during the earthquake. Yeah. And of course, there have been a lot of aftershocks that are not negligible either. Right, right. Uh, the last few I've seen, the significance ones were magnitude 6.6 .6 and magnitude 6.7. Um, and there's definitely a, a um, a potential for more large aftershocks. The rule of thumb we typically use in seismology, and this is by no means uh, true for all earthquakes, is that the largest aftershock is about a magnitude unit less than the main shock. And since, of course, everything works logarithmically and what we do in geoscience <laughs> and earthquakes, uh, a magnitude unit less would mean 10 times less energy release, right? 10 times less energy release, yes, but in terms, sometimes in terms of Oh, sorry, that's actually not correct. <laughs> um, it's actually 30 times less energy release. It's 10 times less shaking. Um, but the energy scales as a parameter we call the moment. And the moment takes into account the area, the slip, and the strength of the rocks. Um, and so one magnitude unit is 30 times more moment, which is proportional to the energy. Okay, yeah, so there's... Uh, there's moment, and then on magnitudes, I know that every time there's a large earthquake and we see things in the news about it, there's always some confusion about was it a 7.8, was it a 7.9, was it... <laughs> and that's because there are a lot of different magnitude scales. Yes, yes. So there are a number of magnitude scales, um, and they're useful for different things. Some of them are more accurate, and we want to use those after the earthquake um, to get the best sense of how big the earthquake was. Um, but the less accurate ones tend to be a little faster. And so we want to use those early in the event to say, this is going to be a big event. We need to be ready. We need to mobilize our scientists and our response immediately. Yeah. And that's something that we could probably do a whole show on at some point is magnitudes <laughs> and uh, magnitude saturation, where some magnitude scales actually, once the earthquake starts getting bigger, the magnitude scale doesn't. It saturates. Uh, so it's a really complicated thing and it's, it's easy Fun. to see why it gets uh, messed up in the news a lot yeah but all right so we've oh uh, can i say one thing about that, that you, now that you mentioned that yeah. um in the news you'll commonly hear richter magnitude no one uses <laughs> richter magnitude anymore uh we use i mentioned the term moment and the magnitude that is reported now is almost always moment magnitude uh, it's specifically related to the waveforms you get at seismic stations. When you see those wiggly lines um, on seismograms around the world, we use those to determine uh, the moment of the earthquake, which gets converted into magnitude. Um, we no longer use the Richter magnitude that went out of 
um, popularity many, many, many years ago. Yeah, and I mean, Matt just brought up a good point that I think a lot of people don't think about, knowing about uh, you know Richter magnitude and some of these things that maybe not get reported in the news, right? But we use data from all over the world for earthquakes that are even much smaller than this. Yeah. Uh, but this earthquake showed up on pretty much every seismometer on the globe. Yeah. Uh, if it didn't, that seismometer probably wasn't working. <laughs> and it continued to show up for a long time, or the aftermath of it did mm -hmm. anyway, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, we've got waves that will take the short path and long path, and then sometimes they'll go around the globe again, and we'll see them come back around. Right. Uh, the surface waves anyway. So really the seismograms from around the world are really interesting to look at and the folks over at IRIS and EarthSco, or the US Array I guess, have made some really nice movies and this is one of the ones that's linked in in the show notes you should go take a look at of all of these stations that are currently in the US, uh, I guess these are IRIS operated stations. I believe so, yeah. Um, and each of them is a dot on the map, and it's colored by how much it's moving up or down through time. And so as you play it, you actually see waves propagate across the U.S., and these are from the Nepal earthquake. And the wavelengths are massive, I mean, size of several states. <laughs> uh, so it's really interesting to go look at. It's uh, not quite as good as before when we had a little bit denser array coverage in the middle of the country though, right? Yeah. Now, uh, the eastern U.S. isn't very amenable to um, <laughs> looking at surface waves just in terms of the way it's shaped. Uh, when the stations were in the central U.S., they had a nice boxy sort of distribution and you could see surface waves coming from anywhere quite well. Yeah, and I remember down uh, close to the Gulf Coast, where you would get a lot of sight effects. So you're sitting on sediment and things just really lit up there because there's a lot of shaking that was locally amplified. Yeah, which brings up a really good point. When we look at a city like Kathmandu, which was very near the earthquake and in fact was right above uh, most of the uh, slip that happened during the earthquake, uh, Kathmandu sits in a basin in the Himalayas. And in basins, those get filled up with sediments, so they end up being flat. And that's why Kathmandu is built there, because most of the times in mountains, you don't have flat areas. But in basins, you have nice um, flat areas. You can build a big city, and it's great most of the time. When an earthquake <laughs> happens, sediments shake really severely. The other thing that happens is liquefaction. Um, and so sediments, when they shake really severely and have water in them, lose all of their strength. And if a building is sitting on that or a road or something like that, it literally will just sink into the ground. It turns into something like quicksand. Um, and so Kathmandu, although it was built really nicely, not considering earthquakes, if you actually shake it, was in a really bad place. Uh, and if you look at the shake map, one of the products the USGS makes, um, there's a red dot around Kathmandu because of its site effects, because of those sediments there. Well, and that's an important thing. Uh, recently, there was a new hazard map released for the U.S. Yeah. by the USGS. And I know that's a lot of the uh, the headache that yeah. goes into that, is trying to account for side effects and also things like the population density and the building quality and uh, all kinds of things go into determining, well, how severe the shaking will be. I guess building quality doesn't really determine that, but right. that does determine uh, what the consequences are going to be economically and in terms of loss of life, which unfortunately for this earthquake... Uh, looks like it's going to be pretty significant. Yes. Uh, as of 
today, uh, so we're recording this on Wednesday, of course you're hearing it on Friday, I think the latest estimate is over 5,000. And they still haven't been to most of the remote villages around the city of Kathmandu, um, which will have suffered um, as much or more than Kathmandu because they tend to be um, pretty poor in terms of infrastructure. Um, And they can't be accessed right now. Um, You can't drive on the roads. Um, You know, you can maybe fly a helicopter up there, but as soon as you get to about 15,000 feet, helicopters don't really work anymore. Um, so it, it's it's a really difficult issue just trying to bring aid um, even to the big cities there. Yeah, and they had some severe thunderstorms actually yesterday, and they had to ground all the upper. They had lightning and torrential mm-hmm. downpours, uh, so it's really a problem. The Pager report from the USGS, uh, which estimates impact of some of these large events, uh, right now they have the maximum uh, fatality estimate uh, between, uh, it's a logarithmic scale, so 10,000, just over 10,000, but the probabilities are pretty close. I think that's the 33% bracket. The 31% bracket is between 1 and 10,000. Yeah. So can we talk a little bit about Pager? It's a really neat project. I don't know if you've talked about it on your show before. Uh, we haven't, and we, we should, because yeah. I don't think many people know it exists. Okay. So Pager stands for Prompt Assessment of Geophysical Earthquake Response. Did I get that right? I, I think that's right. <laughs> Um, I actually don't really remember what it stands for, and I should because it's a USGS product and I work with the people who develop it. Um, but in any case, what it does is it takes the earthquake and predicts the shaking distribution around the earthquake. This takes into account the style of earthquake, the size of earthquake, um, the finiteness of an earthquake, which is a special way of saying big earthquakes happen along a distributed area. They don't happen at one point. Um, it then takes the shaking from an earthquake uh, and takes into account site effects like we were talking about earlier. And so then we've got this shaking distribution. Um, after that, you say, okay, well, there's a population density at each of these places we've calculated, the shaking. Um, and so it, it tells you the exposure to the severity of shaking. Um, It then takes into account things like infrastructure at those populations. Um, We've already talked about how that's kind of a difficult thing to ascertain, but um, we have a general sense of how good the construction is in most places globally. So with all those things together, we can use sort of typical um, sort of shaking infrastructure relations to predict how much damage there will be and how many people will die uh, in these places. Um, So we can get a really rapid uh, assessment of how destructive, damaging the earthquake is. Yeah, so there's even an estimated economic loss, which uh, for this earthquake is over $1 billion, uh, the current estimate. So how much of this pager report is automated uh, once they do their, their picks on the seismograms, is it entirely automated from there, or is there a lot of human input? Between? As far as I know, most of Pager is automated. Once the earthquake solution comes out, Pager is essentially instantaneous after that, within minutes. 
And so the, we talked about earlier how there are rapid ways to assess the earthquake size. So with the first estimate of the earthquake, um, the pager comes out and the earthquake is a point source. It tends to be a little smaller or an accurate magnitude um, and a pager comes out for that. Then as the earthquake goes through iterations and they get better accuracy in its parameters and its slip and its size, where it happened, uh, pager is updated for each of those iterations. And so it will, it will go through several iterations for large earthquakes. Okay. And so this earthquake, one thing that uh, we haven't talked about yet, it actually occurred pretty close to the surface. Yes, it was very shallow. I'm sure that factors into the shaking that Absolutely. pager takes into account. So this was, uh, I think, nine miles for those of us in, that think in miles. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not used to thinking uh, in terms of the metric or in terms of the uh, American system for earthquakes. It was 15 kilometers depth, so that's about nine miles. Okay, yeah. So that's actually, <laughs> comparatively to a subduction earthquake, uh, really remarkably shallow. Remarkably shallow. Um, there are subduction earthquakes that happen at that depth, but at that depth, it's usually water, not people. Um, in this case, the earthquake was right under uh, Nepal. And so the shaking um, was, was at its most intense where under land, whereas in, with subduction earthquakes, because they happen underwater, the severe shaking on land is a little bit less than it would be right above the earthquake. Right. And so I guess one of the other things that I haven't heard many people talking about other than in seismological circles uh, <laughs> is Coulomb stress change. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so when an earthquake occurs, stress is transferred in the plates that participate in the earthquake, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and that can load or unload neighboring faults and make earthquakes on them more or less likely, right? Right. So let's preface this with saying that uh, the collision between India and Eurasia does not consist of only one fault. It's absolutely riddled with many faults that are building all of these mountains. And so there's the what we call the main plate boundary detachment um, that the earthquake occurred on. But above that, in the upper plate, so in the mountains, there are lots and lots of other faults. And many of these can have magnitude 7 to 7.5 earthquakes on them. Um, so one of the issues I'm very concerned with is um, can, will these faults have a big earthquake? Um, and so we compute this Coulomb stress, um, which is just a way of determining whether um, these faults are being pushed harder or pulled, restrained from um, having, from slipping, and um, determining whether they're sort of more likely to have an earthquake. And it turns out um, many of these faults um, in Nepal should be loaded by this earthquake. So there's an increased likelihood of um, earthquakes in the upper plate following this event, especially south of Kathmandu and where this earthquake happened. But it looked like in the Coulomb stress change maps that you generated, that's pretty limited to the rupture area. Once you go off the ends of the rupture area, it really didn't do that much loading or unloading. Exactly. And so um, one of the, with this specific type of earthquake, and I won't get too much into the details, um, the effect is limited to the direction the fault slipped. 
Um, and as we talked about earlier, India and Eurasia are sort of moving north-south relative to each other. And the slip on this event is, is almost parallel to that. And so most of this Coulomb stress transfer um, is also limited to that north-south direction. Right. So this is, I mean, I guess we haven't said it in plain terms, a pure, pure thrust event. Yes. <laughs> Pretty much. So what that means is if you take your arms and lay them on top of each other, and hold them pretty much horizontal uh, for this case, and your right arm is Eurasia, your left arm is India under it, and then you kind of scissor them side to side. That's pretty much exactly what we're talking about here. Yep. And these other faults that Matt's saying are probably loaded now are at pretty steep angles relative to that. Relative to that, they're they anywhere from 30 to 60 degrees dipping when we, when we talk about uh, their orientation. Um, one of the we don't have a great sense of their orientation. We also don't have a great sense of which of them actually have earthquakes or not either. We know they have earthquakes. We look at the seismicity and see that they have magnitude fours throughout um, history, but we don't have a great sense of which big faults can have big earthquakes. Yeah, and I, I'm not really familiar with how dense of geophysical data we have here, but being <laughs> A mountainous area where fieldwork is impossible, pretty <laughs> difficult much. to impossible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can't imagine that we know a great deal. I, there aren't any nice three D seismic volumes like we have in the plains, right. for sure. Right. Uh, anything would probably be remote sensing. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 very difficult to get at the subsurface. But a lot of work has gone into um, the evolution of the Himalayas, and so uh, we have. Our, our idea of what is there is much better than it was 20 years ago. Um, and so those improvements will be very important for understanding the future hazard of this area. Right. And we'll link in a cross-section of this area. Uh, well, a representative cross-section. <laughs> very, area, we'll very say. schematic. <laughs> and uh, you can see it's a mess. Yes. It really is. So let's see. We said that there would be... A, there's an avalanche on Everest, and there was probably moderate shaking there from the shake map. Mm -hmm. uh, there will be a video in the show notes as well of that avalanche occurring, and it, it looks absolutely terrifying. Yeah. And it's not something that you generally think of as a hazard associated with earthquakes. Right, right. Many earthquakes do not happen where there's a lot of snow and mountains, um, at least these kinds of big earthquakes. The other thing is Everest is so important in popular culture. It's the tallest mountain. It's the one that every mountaineer wants to conquer. And so anything that happens there is, is very exposed in the media. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're still trying to get uh, folks off of Everest. I know it's kind of climbing season right now. So the base camp had a lot of folks in it, and there were quite a few people up on the mountain. And it's hard to get people off the mountain if there's trouble with regarding, you know, no earthquake yeah. <laughs> whatsoever. Uh, so it's a really difficult time over there. And correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't base camp uh, have the worst effects from the avalanche? Uh, I think some of the higher elevation camps actually were less affected by the avalanche. Yeah, the base camp is kind of in a valley, and uh, they got hit by the avalanche very hard. There were several deaths there. I know one, at least, was just a, a trauma from rock and things that were in the avalanche. Yeah. Uh, and the base camp itself, from the pictures I've seen, looked really pretty destroyed. Yeah. Uh, 
You bring up a good point. It's not the shaking that kills people. It's the things falling from the shaking that kill people. Right. And, I mean, buildings, that they're big and we think of them as solid. But during an earthquake, uh, facades fall off of buildings. And so I guess we should probably mention uh, if there is shaking, probably one of the worst things you could do would be to immediately exit yeah, it, it can depend uh, what your situation is specifically, what kind of building you're in. Um, you know, it used to be uh, back in the earlier 20th century, they said you should run into a door frame. Um, well, door frames back then used to be structural. They used to help hold up the building, and typically that's where you could be protected from falling debris. Um, that's not the case for many modern buildings. They're just... Uh, ways to get from one room to another so door frames will fall down. Um, but yes, you do want to get under a sturdy object and protect yourself from falling debris. That's very important. Um, if you can get outside and get away from falling things, uh, that's great, but that can be very difficult. And if there are brick walls around you, you uh, those will fall over. Um, and so you want to avoid those. Yeah, and that's probably a little bit... You know, easier to get away from buildings somewhere like uh, the plains yes as compared to uh, a very densely populated area like Kathmandu where you have buildings that are taller than the uh, the area between them the street right uh, where it's pretty much impossible to get away from yeah. any kind of falling debris and there are buildings designed to not fall over essentially um, so that even with shaking even though they might be damaged and have to be um, destroyed, taken down after the earthquake, they don't fall over. But those tend to be expensive. Um, and that was is one of the main problems with Nepal, is they couldn't afford to pay for the infrastructure, the types of buildings needed to withstand an earthquake. Um, many news articles have said, oh, scientists knew there was an earthquake that was going to happen here. We can't predict when. We did know there was going to be an earthquake there. But uh, that doesn't matter when you can't pay for a building to withstand the shaking. Right. And I mean, it's the same with, you know, all these aftershocks or the, the earthquakes that we're saying on these loaded faults now afterwards. At, at some point they will happen, but that's a geological some point, not next week, next month, next year, year. you know, it could be many years down the road. Yeah. And the aftershocks from this earthquake even are going to continue for months and months. Yeah. And pretty much anything within one fault length around this area will be probably called an aftershock, right? Yeah. I mean, there, there are multiple definitions of aftershocks. And um, then we start talking about, after the main aftershock sequence, we talk about events that might be triggered by this earthquake. Um, there's a spectrum between those. They're not necessarily distinct. Um, but yes, Immediately after the earthquake, we've seen a lot of aftershocks. Um, we've also seen, even in the just the week after the earthquake, um, or, or a few days after the earthquake, how they've already decreased in number. That's not to say there won't be another big event again. Um, and so what we call an aftershock, what we call a triggered event, is more semantics at some point. But um, yes, there will be more earthquakes there. Yeah, and I know it's when Oklahoma had their large earthquake a few years ago, there's a lot of talk about, you know, there were a couple of large events and then the largest event. 
So initially we thought, okay, well, these are aftershocks, and then, well, they turned out to be foreshocks for another event, and it, it all got very, very confusing and right. uh, almost an inception dream in a dream. <laughs> <in a> dream. <laughs> yeah, and it really does, I mean, in, in some ways it really does end up being a matter of semantics. If the preceding events are smaller, then we call them foreshocks. If the preceding events are bigger, we call them the main shock followed by aftershocks. And so um, only in hindsight can we really... Uh, go back and say, oh, this was a foreshock, main shock, aftershock. Right. Uh, well, I guess the kind of the last earthquake uh, thing before we move on to the fun paper Friday, everybody's favorite segment, uh, was uh, much less severe earthquakes, but also making the news uh, prior to this event uh, where officials in Oklahoma have now said that there is likely a link between industrial activities and the recent uptick from, you know, a couple earthquakes a year of any appreciable size to several a day of any appreciable size in Oklahoma. Uh, so it's interesting to see that unfold. I know there's been a lot of news articles and even John Stewart talked about it this week. Yeah. So just as sort of an interesting lead into that, when I started as a, as a seismologist and working in geodynamics, um, I told people I studied earthquakes. Um, this was in 2010 and 2011 when we had the big Japanese earthquake, right? And so everybody wanted to know about Japan. Well, in the last year or two, now everybody wants to know about Oklahoma and wants to know my opinion about fracking and earthquakes and fracking. Um, so it's totally shifted focus from um, these sort of big earthquakes that happen to a more a local um, focus. Yeah, and I mean, that's a place that, you know, we were just talking about buildings being built to withstand earthquakes or not. Uh, Oklahoma is not a place where <laughs> buildings were ever designed or engineered to withstand earthquakes of any size, really. Yeah. Because the historical seismicity is so low. Right. And uh, I was listening to a piece on NPR um, that was talking about uh, how five years ago, 1%, less than 1% of people had earthquake insurance. And now that number has just skyrocketed. I mean, it's it's a much higher percentage. It's 50% now. Um, just because, you know, there have been so many earthquakes there in the past three or four years. Yeah, and a few of them did actually do significant damage right. uh, to some of the structures. And I know there's new, the Devon Tower in Oklahoma City is a very tall building, the tallest in Oklahoma City now, uh, and none of those were ever engineered uh, for that, though Devon Tower being recently built, maybe, maybe not. I'm not, <laughs> not, not sure on the specifics of that. All right, well, for Fun Paper Friday, and since Shan's not here, we, we don't have the cowbell or any of the other <laughs> sound effects, we've got a paper called Dynamics of Micro Droplets Over the Surface of Hot Water, and this is a very interesting paper. I would love to know how to get funding to work on something like that. <laughs> yeah, what is, what is the practical use of micro droplets on, on hot water? The only thing I can imagine is some kind of industrial process maybe one day could benefit from something like this. Right. Uh, I, I have no idea what that would be, though. And so I've got uh, my cup of coffee here, though it's just about empty. <laughs> We're getting close to the end of the show. And if you've ever had a cup of coffee or hot tea, right, you know, it's that kind of white hovering mist steam over the, the top. And so this paper is about that and about the dynamics of that. And turns out it's pretty complicated, right? Yeah, yeah. It, 
it's not straightforward. And I, you know, I like to think that I understand physical processes pretty well, but this one is quite complicated. Right. So if you watch these, I think they call them skins. Yeah. Uh, you'll see that they move and split and have all these kind of weird dynamic things. So this team of scientists actually put a high-speed camera at the bottom of a clear tank and illuminated it and took photos, uh, I think a few thousand frames per second, mm -hmm. of this happening. And turns out that mist is a bunch of suspended droplets that are mean of 10 microns in size. And what causes them to be suspended, apparently, is a topic of debate. Yes. Um, they talk about electrical and balance between electrical and gravitational forces. Um, and it, it's just, it's sort of bizarre to me how these things are hovering, but they can clearly tell they're hovering because they're not affected by things on the surface of the water. Yeah. They said they could see dust on the surface of the water drifting and it was completely uncorrelated with how these were moving. Uh, now see, I had highlighted somewhere here in this paper, yeah, here it is, uh, the force required to levitate this 10 micron droplet is approximately 5 piconewtons. Wow, that's, I don't even know what pico means. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's, uh, let's see, nano would be 10 to the negative 9, so pico would be 10 to the negative 12, I believe. Wow. And I'd, I'm used to dealing in forces that are close to a meganewton right. uh, in my work. So five piconewtons seems like an absurdly small force, <laughs> uh, so much so that electrostatic forces could hold them up, like Matt was saying, uh, or they talked about maybe thermal forces and uh, that these right. drops might be spinning at 30 to 50 times a second, uh, somehow helping them stay in the air because of thermal differences in the drops. Uh, but they kind of discounted that because if you look at the pictures in the paper, the drops form a really kind of triangular network. It's a very regular pattern. Yeah, it's almost uh, fractal in nature, it looks like. Yeah. I dare to say that word. <laughs> uh, that's a can of worms that we probably shouldn't open right now. <laughs> yeah. One of the kind of fun things about this, though, is they measured, you know, these splitting events mm -hmm. at the speed that they propagate. And what they think causes it is one individual drop disappears by probably dropping down into the liquid. And it creates a surface wave on the liquid that swamps subsequent drops and causes a ton of them to disappear. And that that propagates at approximately one meter a second. Yeah, and on the scale of these tiny, tiny bubbles, that happens really, really quickly. Yeah, and when they recorded it with a normal camera before they decided they needed high speed, it was one frame on a 30 frame per second camera for the entire process to happen. Right. Uh, so, I mean, similar to earthquakes, actually. You've got where an event starts, and then it propagates through the medium at some speed, though in this case, a few thousand times slower right. than we generally think of for earthquakes. But one meter a second on the scale of a coffee cup is It's pretty fast. quick. Uh, Unless you have a very big coffee cup. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I need a coffee cup that big some mornings, I think. Uh, one of the other things they did was look at different uh, solutions and different temperatures, right? So coffee, tea, uh, absolutely millicube, pure water. Yeah. And they didn't really see much difference. Um, one kind of neat result was the higher the temperature, the bigger the drops. Mm -hmm. 
and not sure exactly what would cause that. Uh, but one of the previous workers, uh, yes, there are previous workers in this field, apparently, uh, had proposed that maybe these splits in these skins uh, delineated Rayleigh-Bernard convection patterns. And this is something that we haven't talked about before, but something that I've intended to write a blog post on practically forever, <laughs> of these really complicated convection patterns that occur when you boil water and you get kind of these hexagonal-looking convection cells uh, that can be really, really complicated. And if you look up some pictures of Rayleigh-Bernard convection, uh, which we'll link the Wikipedia article in the show notes, uh, and then you look at your coffee cup, you can you can probably draw some parallels there. And I don't, I don't know, Matt, are you a big coffee drinker? Uh, I don't drink coffee. I do drink tea, but um, no, I've, I've stayed off the juice for a while now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in graduate school, I think that's an accomplishment. Uh, it seems like all of us have coffee pots in our offices, if not at our desks. Yeah, yeah. I, did you have anything else that uh, you wanted to add about this paper? Anything that was fascinating to you particularly? Well, to be honest, um, I guess I'd never really even noticed the skins. Maybe I don't drink enough hot beverages, but uh, it was pretty intriguing just to um, look at my tea this morning and actually observe these uh, skins forming on the on the hot beverage and just imagine that much smaller than my eye can resolve are these little droplets uh, responsible for it. Yeah, and I mean, they, they allude to some other effects that I've never noticed before that I'm going to start looking for now though. Like when you have, uh, when you're making drip coffee, they say that the coffee drop, you know, being relatively large compared to these 10 micron things, can actually hit the surface of the coffee in the pot and not immediately coalesce, but actually kind of skate around on the surface for a couple seconds uh, wow. due to a cushion of air between them when they impact. And I never have noticed that, but maybe I should start filming my drip coffee now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you need, I guess for uh, a couple of seconds, you don't even need a high-speed camera to do that. No, you shouldn't. Uh, <laughs> iPhone camera and... Uh, you know, NSF application. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. How much money do you think you're going to get for that? Uh, yeah, probably not. Not much. <laughs> Though I don't know. There are a lot of coffee drinkers at the NSF, I would assume. That's true. That's true. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Matt, for joining us. It's been a, a real pleasure to have you on. And thanks for educating us about this recent and pretty tragic event. Uh, you're very welcome. I'm glad to be on the show. All right. Well, until next week, and Shannon will be back next week. Remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.